0: Well, we are continuing, uh, just trekking through our elder affirmation of faith. We've made our way to Article 12. Last week, Jason taught biblical theology, Part 1. Part 2 is today, historical theology. And Part 3, the Lord willing, is coming, uh, and that will be um, practical theology. So we are going to read through the whole article. And I do not have the computer, which I thought that I would have. So I'm going to have to step over here when I'm reading from these slides. Or maybe, can I bring the pulpit over here? Can I move it? Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. So we will uh, read straight through. There are five parts to this article. And you'll see up there that there are portions that are underlined. I'll try to emphasize those as I'm reading, and you can emphasize them in your own mind. Those are the portions that we'll try to come back and touch to one extent or another. So let's read through. Christ's Church and Her Ordinances. We believe in the one universal church composed of all those in every time and place who are chosen in Christ and united to Him through faith by the Spirit in one body. With Christ Himself as the all supplying, all sustaining, all supreme, and all authoritative head, we believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. We believe it is God's will that the universal church find expression in local churches in which believers agree together to hear the word of God proclaimed, to engage in corporate worship, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to build each other's faith through the manifold ministries of love, to hold each other accountable in the obedience of faith through biblical discipline, and to engage in local and world evangelization The church is a body in which each member should find a suitable ministry for his gifts. It is the household of God in which the Spirit dwells. It is the pillar and bulwark of God's truth in a truth-denying world, and it is a city set on a hill so that men may see the light of its good deeds, especially to the poor, and give glory to the Father in heaven. Part 3. We believe... The baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ and his death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God, the true Israel, and an emblem of burial and cleansing, signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread signifying Christ's body given for His people and drink the cup of the Lord signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord and thus proclaim His death until He comes. Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually, in that by faith they are nourished with the benefits uh, He obtained through His death and thus grow in grace. Last part. We believe that each local church should recognize and affirm the divine calling of spiritually qualified men to give leadership to the church through the role of pastor elder in the ministry of the word and prayer. Women are not to fill the role of pastor elder in the local church, but are encouraged to use their gifts in appropriate roles that edify the body of Christ and spread the gospel. One thing that is very interesting in as, as you study the church in church history is that there really are not, at least in the early centuries of the church, whole works written about the church, all right? You have to go, actually, to the works by these early church fathers about other people, especially heretics and false teachers, kind of pick out what they say about the church and then try to put it together. We'll read this first quote. It's from Erickson's Christian Theology. The church is at once a very familiar and a very misunderstood topic. Among the reasons for this lack of understanding is the fact that at no point in the history of Christian thought has the doctrine of the church received the direct and complete attention that other doctrines have received. Now he's quoting a guy named Colin Williams. Little direct theological attention was ever given to the church itself, probably because it was taken for granted. Now, of course, like we stated just a second ago, they said things about the church, but you can find whole volumes on the Trinity, on the Incarnation, on a variety of other doctrines. You don't find volumes or works on the church. Um, but there's a lot that you can pick out from their works against heretics. So the second quote from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. The necessity for making distinctions was not at once apparent. But as early as the latter part of the second century, there was a perceptible change the rise of heresies made it imperative to name some characteristics by which the true Catholic Church could be known. And there's at least one more reason, and Grudem speaks to it, as to why there are not specific works on the church, or not many anyway. During the first thousand years of the church, there was, for the most part, outward unity. So the next slide is titled, One Body, Pillar and Bulwark of One Faith. And what we have is a text from Ephesians 4 and then two quotes from some early church fathers. They're really there for our encouragement. The truth is that as you read historical theology works or you read the theological works of even the early church and the Reformation and others, it's full of schism, division, false teachers, conflict, and that can be kind of discouraging because the Bible speaks to the church's unity very, very often. And a lot of what we'll even mention today is conflicts between various figures in church history. But here's the truth. God's church is really and truly unified. The article of faith that we just read begins that way. The one universal church, the pillar and bulwark of God's truth. And that sounds a lot like this text in Ephesians 4, which sounds a lot like these two fellows uh, from the early church, which sounds a lot like Spurgeon and Edwards and Bunya. We could just go on and on down the line, including now we get to 21st century America. Grace Church is unified with Jesus's bride through the ages. So here, Ephesians 4, this is 1 through 6, not 4 through 6. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Now, the, your calling is important because Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about Their calling doctrine, this one faith delivered once and for all to the saints, the work of Christ in them and for them. For you have been called by God, verse 2, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called, to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. That's the New Living Translation. 4 through 6 provides, in the book of Ephesians, a transition from that doctrine, from the description of their calling, as it were, into practical admonitions for how they should walk. And in verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 4 there, what you have is a call to Christian faithfulness and unity, and then you have its theological basis in 4 through 6. And now, the rest of the book, of course, is go live in light of these truths. I have underlined up there one faith. I'm going to read two commentators just to show I'm not on an island, and we're not on an island by ourselves, saying that that is doctrine or the faith delivered once for all to the saints. So this is Clinton Arnold and, and Frank Thielman. Paul probably means, this is Theoman, the body of teaching that Christians believe. And Arnold also commenting on one faith. It is the set of convictions that are commonly confessed among Christians. So now we'll read these two quotes from the early church. This is Irenaeus and Theophilus. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. And as if occupying one house carefully preserves it. Now, Theophilus, he was in Antioch. God has given to the world which is driven and tempest-tossed by sin's assemblies. We mean holy churches in which survive the doctrines of the truth. So, the church through the ages, historical theology, right? Including Grace Church is really the pillar and bulwark of God's truth in a truth-denying world, and she is authentically united. Next slide. We're going to touch on this just a tad more. We believe, this is directly from the elder affirmation of faith now, we believe in the one universal church composed of all those and every time and place who are chosen in Christ and united to him through faith with Christ as all authoritative head. It is the pillar and bulwark of God's truth. So there are two errors historically um, that people fall into. One is casting too wide a net right? Saying too many people are Christians. Everybody's a Christian. You don't even have to believe in Jesus to be a Christian. And then, of course, there are those who cast too narrow a net. And there is a sense in which every church falls off the horse on one side or the other. There are no perfect churches, and therefore every net is cast imperfectly. But there's, there's a difference between... Uh, leaning off the horse or barely falling off the horse and jumping off and sprinting in one of the directions, right? Which many people in church history have done. And this is important because in the history of theology, those who, for instance, cast a net too restrictively run in almost every case headlong into heretical doctrine, okay? You can see this with Augustine and the Donatist. So, Augustine is still early, 354 to four. Thirty. The Donatist, named after Donatus the Great, who was a bishop of Carthage, insisted that the church is truly and completely holy. They thought of the church as consisting of perfect saints, a description which fit their group alone. So the Donatists—they really are kind of unimportant in the history of the church. They weren't a big group. They didn't last for very long. They're just a blip on the radar. But Augustine is a huge figure in church history and he fought against them. He, he, was, he was so adamant that he in his pulpit, he preached often, naming them by name as false teachers. But they, they really did believe in perfectionism. They believed that you had to be perfect. So post-baptism, if you sinned, you had to be rebaptized, resaved. re-saved, okay? They also believed that only Donatists were true believers in Jesus. Augustine, of course, objected by saying that they thereby restricted the church to Africa, literally. They were only in Africa for a brief period of time. This is from Hagland, his History of Theology. As Augustine saw it, the entire Church of Christ is found in the entire world. In a series of writings, Augustine refuted the Donatist point of view. Discussions were held with them in Carthage in the year 411, and from that point on, the movement began to diminish in numbers and influence. Finally it died out altogether. But, essentially the same attitude as that held by the Donatists has come up time after time in the history of the church. You can see it in all sorts of different groups. Church of Christ people. They are the only Christians according to their doctrine. They also believe that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. They believe in some uh, form of works-based justification. The papacy, the Catholic church, we're about to go into it with Luther. Same thing, at least in the early centuries. The funny thing about the Catholic church is now they cast the net that's very wide right? They've changed their view. But in previous centuries, it was, you had to be a Catholic in order to go to heaven. The true church is really unified. So now, Luther and the Catholic church. So now we're entering the Reformation period, the early 1500s. Pope Eugene IV, all right, I think he lived in, if I remember, like 1440s or so. He said this, quote, The most holy Roman Catholic Church firmly believes, professes, and preaches that none of those existing outside the Catholic Church, not only pagans but also Jews, heretics, and schismatics, can ever be partakers of eternal life, but that they are to go into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels, unless before death they are joined with her, her being a reference, of course, to the Catholic Church. We know that the Catholic Church works based justification all over the place, among other things that we could name. We can contrast this with Luther's view. Quote, this is from Hagland, not directly from Luther. It is a congregation of all on earth, that is the church, who have faith in Christ. This does not refer to an external association with institutions and offices, but to an inner fellowship shared by all who have a common faith and a common hope. So our elder affirmation of faith opens with the one universal church unified as the pillar and bulwark of God's truth. And that is important. We might be tempted to skip over that, but in the history of theology and in church history, it's rather important. <clears throat> so you'll see D, we could have included the Catholic church in this. Those two, Augustine Donatist, Luther Catholic, those were both casting too restricted in it. Only Catholics, only Donatists or Christians. Now we're too wide, all right? The Catholic Church now falls into this category. So if you fall, if you not just fall, but if you jump off the horse, like I said, and sprint in the other direction, which many people have, then you also run the risk. uh, You almost inevitably fall into heresy. So the many in our day who claim to be Christians but are deconstructing, I don't know if that would be a new word for you. This is massive right now. Many people fall into this category and it's been a storm that's been brewing for many, many, many years. Deconstruction is confusing because it means so many things to so many different people, but essentially it means a reevaluation of every point of, the, of Christian doctrine, a reinterpreting of Scripture, and it inevitably ends up leading to heresy, and everyone that I've seen do this. Joshua Harris, as an exa- a prominent example, he wrote, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Many of us will be familiar with him, he said, and I quote, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements, I have for defining a Christian. I am not a Christian. Excuse me. The one church is unified through the centuries, okay? And it's wise for our elders to have Begun our elder affirmation of faith that particular way. So now we jump to a totally different topic the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of ground to cover in Christ's church and her ordinances, so it's going to feel popcorny, and it just is that way, right? So forgive me. But the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read Matthew 26, uh, 26 to begin there at the bottom of that slide. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, This is my body. Carson, commenting on that text in particular, said few clauses of four words, this is my body, have evoked more debate than that particular phrase. So there are three main views. Jason touched on this a good bit, even in the biblical theology section. But you have the memorial view. We would fall under that. The Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation. And the Lutheran view, which is called consubstantiation. So we'll read those definitions. I just stole the memorial view straight. From our elder affirmation of faith. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people, and drink the cup of the Lord, signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. That is, the elements signify something, they are metaphorical or figurative. <clears throat> the Catholic view, transubstantiation contends that the elements of bread and wine are changed in, in substance into Christ's body and blood. And in truth, you can kind of see where they grab that. In fairness, this is my body. Now, it can't be. Jesus had to be signifying something that hadn't happened yet, even in Matthew 26, because his body had not been broken yet. It must signify what was coming, just like for us, it signifies what has been, right? But in fairness to the Catholics you can at least see where they get the idea from. With regard to the Lutheran view, I honestly don't have a clue where they grab it from. Feels like to me, they just kind of said, like Luther just said, I got to come up with something different. All right. Um, And I talked to Brandy. Brandy is, it might be, she knows, and she said basically, I don't know either. Right. So there you go. She was catechized or in the Lutheran church. All right. Consubstantiation holds that the bread and the wine do not actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but that the true body and blood of Christ are present in, with, and under the elements. Both of those definitions come from Greg Allison's historical theology. Now, uh, Brandy, I talked to her this morning trying to get some clarity, and she said that what I'm about to say would cause Lutherans to cringe. So you should know that, all right? But there's not, in my opinion, a ton of difference between consubstantiation and transubstantiation. Here's a quote from Luther himself. The sacrament is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and the wine. So the way that I've heard it described by Lutherans is it's kind of like a sponge filled, soaked to the brim with water. All right. And everywhere the sponge goes, it is a sponge, but it carries water with it, in it, under it. All right. Holdrich Zwingli, he was a contemporary of Luther, and for us, um, a helpful brother, bringing clarity. Commenting on Matthew 26, he said, it has already become clear enough that in this context, the word is cannot be taken literally. Hence, it follows that it must be taken metaphorically or figuratively. I'm going to skip a long quote from a Uh, modern guy, since we're in church history, named Blomberg. You can move on to the next slide, Josh. Okay. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to speak quickly, and we'll leave time for questions. Elders in the church, this is article, part five of this article. Spiritually qualified (coughs) men, excuse me, I need a drink of water. So you can see the two definitions. I'll read them. So for egalitarianism, it is the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. Complementarianism, which is what we fall into, it's our view, it is the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. So underneath complementarianism, you'll see that I have there, the burden of proof, in all honesty, lies with the egalitarians. Why? Because it runs contrary to almost 1,800 years of church history. All right first bullet point under the definition of egalitarianism. This is a modern issue. Male leadership is assumed until about 1800 AD. Challenges to this are very, very, very hard to come by. I found it very difficult to come by them. Now, this idea is taking the evangelical world by storm. The reason why I bring it up, it's a modern issue. We're in historical theology. In some ways, it could have been left out. But the reason why I bring it up is 700 years from now, when they're talking about historical theology in our day, this will be one of the major issues that comes up. And it's at at our doorstep in many ways. The Southern Baptist Church, even, as a convention, has churches that have already ordained female pastors and have not yet been disfellowshipped, okay? So, we ought to deal with it. We ought to think through it, and we ought to do it well, and we ought to be fair uh, to the egalitarians. So, Uh, three most common arguments for egalitarianism. Paul's commands are culturally bound to Galatians 3.28. That's the text that says, in fact, if someone would look up Galatians 3.28, I'm going to have you read it in just a minute. But Galatians 3.28 is a text, uh, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, um, ends gender-based role distinctions. And they couple that with numerous other texts. And then three, Junia <clears throat> was a female apostle in Romans 16:7. So for the first argument on the next slide, Paul's commands on gender-based roles are culturally bound. We'll look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. <clears throat> You'll see I have underlined for emphasis certain things. In every place of worship, that does not sound culturally bound. That's not only first century. Ephesian churches. I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Uh, There's a book called uh, Historical, or sorry, yeah, a a biblical theological or historical theological introduction to the New Testament. William Barclay said this, Paul roots his argument not in the local situation, but in creation. So the argument kind of goes like this, right? It's the same with commands for Uh, masters and slaves. We know those are culturally bound. It is not the case that because there are commands to masters and slaves that now in 21st century America, there should therefore be masters and slaves. But Paul never grounds those commands in creation before the fall. We know that slavery as an institution is a result of sin and the fall. This is not like that. He roots it in creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's appeal to creation indicates that this is the way God intended for human beings to function all along, even before sin and the fall. Second, as we pointed out, Paul begins his instruction in this section with a universal appeal to proper practice in all churches. In other words, Paul places his instructions regarding women leading and teaching in a universal transcultural context. These instructions are not just for women in the churches in first century Ephesus. They are for women in all churches everywhere. Slide two, argument two, and a reformer. I'll try to do this quick. Who has Galatians? Can you read it out loud? Galatians? Yeah, 328. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thank you, David. Now, all we're gonna read is Wolfgang Musculus. He's another reformer, historical theology, history of the church. Vietnamese Viennese not Vietnamese. Viennese pastor, reformer and theologian. All right. He argues very well and rightly. Paul is not saying that just because they are Christians, there is no difference between Jews and Greeks, between freemen and slaves, between males and females. Christianity does not remove distinctions of race, social status, or sex. What he means is that in Christ, it is not necessary to be a Jew or a Greek, or free or slave, or male or female, as if Christianity consisted exclusively of one or more of these. Paul meant that in Christ, there is no difference between Greeks and Jews in the sense that Jews are not more privileged than Greeks nor is a slave inferior to a freeman, nor are men more important than women. No Jew was arguing that slaves and women were incapable of receiving God's grace or entering into communion with him. But many of them were disputing whether Greeks and other Gentiles could do the same. He therefore reminds them that God accepts Jews, but not in a way that excludes Gentiles, just as he accepts freemen and men in a way that does not exclude slaves and women. Here we must recognize and proclaim the singular goodness and love of God who does not reject anyone because they are of low social standing, nor does he show any special regard for those who are of higher social standing in this world order. Very helpful. <clears throat> All right, last argument, and then a couple of minutes for questions, Lord willing. Junia, Junia, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, was a female apostle, Romans sixteen 7. I'm gonna read these <clears throat> three translations. We have the NASB first, The NLT second, and that's the Lexham English Bible third. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. NLT. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. L-E-B. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my compatriots and my fellow prisoners who are well known to the apostles. Are also in Christ before me. All right, now this is too quick because this is sort of a, a somewhat complex issue, which is why we're going to a simple solution that makes a lot of sense. You can see that even the name is different in the NASB from the other two. Junius is male, Junia is female. All right, the second reading, female, is almost certainly correct. If you go read all of the people who spoke Greek, there's no confusion whatsoever about whether or not this person was male or female, okay? They all say that this person was female. Outstanding among the apostles, here's where the egalitarians argue that they were apostles, capital A, with the same authority as Paul, all right? That she was an apostle. And they get it from this sort of phrasing, which is not Altogether wrong, but they pull it out. Outstanding among the apostles. So even among the apostles, she stood out as excellent. They are highly respected among the apostles. Second reading, well known to the apostles. Here's Douglas Moo. This is from his NIVAC, not his big commentary. The couple, they were almost certainly a husband and wife, who were Jewish, came to Christ before Paul, and had been in prison with him, probably because of their shared ministry of being apostles, lowercase a. Since we know nothing of them elsewhere, Andronicus and Junia were probably not apostles in exactly the same way that, for instance, Paul and Peter were, divinely chosen representatives of the risen Christ and with a unique authority. Apostles here, rather, will have the same sense missionary or accredited messenger. It's the same word used in Philippians 2.25. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier and he was your apostle or messenger to help me in my need. So Junia was almost certainly a messenger in that sense. Epaphroditus is never named as an elder at the church of Philippi or have any teaching authority whatsoever. Rather, he was simply a messenger bringing a gift and risking his life to bring something from the Philippians to Paul. I'll say quickly that it's not all negative, right? That our elder affirmation of faith ends with this idea that women are free altogether to use their gifts to the building up of the church, only not in the ways that God has specifically restricted for their good, women's good, and men's good, all right? So we have just a couple of minutes, maybe, for questions. If anybody has just a burning question, comment, clarifying, anything. It doesn't have to be a question. You can say, um, anything that would be helpful. So when you uh, when you talked about the phrase in 1 Timothy that women should not express 40 over man and that was not culturally found, it was rooted in the Genesis the creation here. That's a argument. Because it's a true Genesis, therefore Paul uses that same line of argument for head coverings in 1 Corinthians where he says, that because the woman was taken from the man, therefore she should cover her head. Mm -hmm. We would say that latter one was culturally bound. Obviously there's other women who are not that head cover, nor would I encourage started to do so. But since both of them are making their argument in the creation narrative, how do we distinguish whether one is All right, Uh, this may not be a great answer to that question. Just freely admit on the front end, okay? Um, And uh, that command is also not culturally bound at its root, right? In a similar way to the fact that this one's not culturally bound at its root. Women should act like, look like women, right? And men should do the same. Likewise, that's grounded in creation, right, narrative, and it is not culturally bound. The particular expressions, some, some, uh, some, in some ages, women did not wear pants. It would have been very manly for a woman to put on a set of trousers, right? They should not have done that in that age, right? In that age, dresses were appropriate. So it, it's, it's like that. The expression alone is different, not the command. The command is not null and void. All right, friends, we are late, I think. So let me pray one more time, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we pray that you would be with us for the rest of the day. We want to know you better than we do right now. We want to serve you more faithfully than we have uh, our entire life before entering this room today. Help us, we pray. Be with us. Um, Pray that you'd fill our pastor with your spirit. Proclaim your word to us through him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.